0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. I hope you are safe and healthy. Thank you for tuning in to this hour of togetherness where we discuss what unites rather than divides us. Coming up, an interview with Charles Baxter, author of The Sun Collective.
1: What is reality? And and when you start asking, What is reality? You then start to ask, or at least I do, a a related question which defines the first one, and it is whose reality is it?
0: We'll be back with Charles Baxter in just a bit. First, I want to say to you, thank you for listening. For the last seven plus years, I've been producing at least 40 episodes a year of First Draft, although in the past year, it's been almost 50. Producing these interviews is indeed a labor of love, but there is also labor involved, time and effort, and a lot of planning and schedule wrangling across time zones from Colorado to New York to London to Tel Aviv to Harare and back again. We are going through monumental changes as a society right now, and as I discussed in an episode earlier this year with the writer Claire Massoud, the time for art is now, I emphatically believe this, and if you value this program, please consider becoming a contributing member by donating at www.patreon.com slash First Draft Writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com First Draft Writers. You can give any amount, but for just $6 a month, you will receive extras from the show, including ad-free, pitch-free episodes, and cuts that didn't make it into the final episode writing tips, and more. I assure you even $6 a month makes a huge difference to me and the production of this show. Each Patreon member keeps this show going and it's here because of others like you who transformed from listener to supporter. It's an amazing and simple way to continue discussions like the one you're about to hear. Whether this is your first time listening or you have caught the more than 300 produced episodes, I am asking you with humbleness and appreciation if you would consider supporting First Draft as a donating member. It's important to me to produce interviews with diverse writers and sometimes on difficult topics that I truly believe contribute something meaningful and diverse to our societal conversations about what it means to be alive today. This effort takes money, time, equipment, and organization, more than I'd like to admit to having, and a lot of heart and sweat to come to fruition each week. Please beat the odds of having to listen to this seven times before you join the First Draft community. Go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. You can donate any amount and you know it will go to the continuation of the conversations that you've heard before and you're about to hear again on literary craft, content, and practice as well as the culture we inhabit. Please stay tuned at the end of this show. I'll offer recommendations on an episode in the archive that is similar to the one you're about to hear. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Charles Baxter, who is the author of six novels, including the National Book Award nominated The Feast of Love. He has published six short story collections and also writes poetry, nonfiction, and books on literary craft. His stories have been included in the Best American Short Stories. He lives in Minneapolis and teaches at the University of Minnesota who began the discussion with me offering Charles Baxter a summary of his new novel, The Sun Collective. So at the center of The Sun Collective, we have, and it's told in, in four parts, I believe, and sometimes the parts switch in perspective a little bit, but at the core of the novel is a family with the last name of Bredigan. And they, they are an older couple, Harold and Alma, who have been married for 40 years. And they have two children and their son, Tim was an actor, and he has disappeared. And this takes place in Minneapolis, and he has disappeared, not, not out of The sense that he ran away, but more in the sense that he's finding himself. And they are kind of always looking for him on the streets. Alma goes to different organizations of faith and they're always looking for him because they don't exactly know why. At the same time, there's the rise of this organization in Minneapolis called the Sun Collective. And they have a manifesto. I mean, I wouldn't necessarily call it a cult, but I would say that it's. It's a group of people who have shared beliefs that are trying to change the world and they have generally around their belief system is the idea that capitalism isn't working and that we have to change our greedy ways and we need to work collectively and have shared farms and gardens and that sort of thing. But there's also this more sinister element going on in the society where there's this idea that it's important to get rid of the poorest and the richest by death. So there's, there's some beautiful ideas and some sinister ideas. And so that's kind of the backdrop of everything going on in the book.
1: For your listeners who are interested in structuring, structuring stories, I would just go further to say that uh, the book is a kind of convergence narrative because, as you said, there uh, is the older couple, Harry and Alma Bredigan, and there's a younger couple, uh, one of whom... Uh, Is a sort of mysterious guy Named Ludlow And the other Is his Eventual girlfriend Christina Christina Lobdell Um, And the Book has The four of them Converge uh, Because Christina and Ludlow are associated With the Sun Collective And alma has been going over there in search of tim and about midway or two-thirds through the story the the son tim the actor uh, appears in the novel and plays a an important part of the um, an important part in the story uh in in the last third Ludlow is a kind of Captain Happen character. He's the person who starts to make things happen. And Christina, I think, uh, becomes in some ways the center of the story. And for me, becomes kind of heroic um, in in the latter pages of the book. But yes, you've, you, you got all of the details um, right.
0: Yeah, and I, I should say also going on it, it, during this time, they have a president who has an amazing name, President Thorkelson. Uh,
1: yes, Amos Alonzo Thorkelson.
0: I love it. Um, He's a little bit Trump-like, uh, but not exactly.
1: <laughs> a little Trump-like, not exactly. He's a figure from uh, a, a kind of comic universe, Um uh, there, there was um, a a coach named Amos Alonzo Stagg, um, who um, was a, a figure in sports mythology fifty or sixty years ago. And Torkelson, the name Torkelson just came out of the blue to me. Um, one one interviewer said, "Well, did you know that uh, there was a?" Horkelson, who was a legislator, who I think he, this is now 50 years ago, um, was overtly racist. And I said, no, I never heard of this person. That's that's the way accidents happen sometimes when you're writing a book.
0: I want to talk about all of these things that were converging and the themes and, and what was going on. But I have to just ask, and I don't know if this is a fair question, because the book itself could, is probably the answer. But I also want to say, like, what was going on in your head when you started writing this?
1: Um, three things were going on in my head. The first was that um, because I live in downtown Minneapolis and I walk around the city almost every day, I see homeless people almost every day of my life. Um, some of them I've gotten to know. Um, I've had conversations with quite a few of them. And uh, I think about them a lot. Um, the, 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 the second thing that was going through my head before I started the novel was that I had by coincidence, and this is now 50, I, I'm sorry, five uh, or six years ago. I'd been reading about the 1918 flu epidemic and I'd come across the fact that um, one of the folklore cures for uh, the flu was for the afflicted person to somehow get to, or a, a person who was afraid of getting the flu, to take a mirror, go to a creek or a river put the mirror in the water and wash, uh, the reflected face, one's own reflected face in the water. And I just thought, Oh my God, think of that. Um, and the third thing that I came across was that I discovered that Al Qaeda had claimed, again, this is years ago, that their number one target in the United States was the Mall of America, and I I, I just laughed when I read that because I thought, uh, you know, that's such a ridiculous place. Who would want to bother to bomb it? But I, you know, when you start a book, you have a lot of different intentions, and because my work on it took place over the last four or five years, uh, something of our political climate began to seep into it as well. And I thought when I started the book that I also needed to start the story clock uh, and to... Uh, make sure that the reader knew that time was going to run out for these characters. So that uh, w- once you're in the first chapter, you know, first of all, that Alma and Harry's son has gone somewhere, is out on the street somewhere, and they're looking for him. They're, they're, they're both retired and they're both looking for their son. As they've heard that he's somewhere in Minneapolis and I made sure that the reader knew that Harry's health is not good that he has a bad heart and um, he, he may be gone before the novel is, is over. But I didn't outline the book some writers do some writers outline everything that uh, the plot is going to develop into but i didn't uh i i took things wherever they i, I took events wherever they wanted to go but I, I i knew that i had to keep the point of view in the novel limited to three people to to harry to his wife alma and to christina uh And that's how it got started.
0: It's so fascinating to hear these three things that were going on in your head that appear on the surface very disparate while everything's going on in our culture. And like, how do you sit down every day and bring those thoughts, which are really based in real things, and put them through characters into a story? And maybe that's a wordless process that's hard to explain. Well, I knew
1: that I had to get inside, as any writer does, I had to get inside the skin skins of these characters. And I had to talk to them, in effect, and ask them, what do you want and what are you going to do? And then I had to say to myself, what kind of interesting trouble can I get them into? Uh, And how long do they have uh, to get into trouble? And how big is the trouble going to be? Uh, I I, I felt at certain times that the novel uh, was completely capable of getting away from me. And I I know about, about three years ago, I, on a trip to New York, I had lunch with my editor and he, he said very kind in a kindly way, how's the book going? And I said, I don't know. I think it may take me the rest of my life to write. I don't know what it is. I don't know how to do it. I don't know where it's going. Uh and that was all true three or four years ago. Um you you just keep working your way through what has to happen, what the characters want for themselves and want for others and Uh, If they want something bad, so much the better, so much the better for the book. You know, uh, bad news for the characters is good news for the story. The pivotal character for the plot was this guy, Ludlow, who grows impatient with the Sun Collective and their you know, free stores and their idea of um, urban gardens and their small improvements. He's in for the big revolutionary violence, or the small revolutionary violence. He calls it termite violence. And it's his tendency to violence that provides the novel with, One of its two climactic moments. So, I mean, in a general way, that's that's how I found myself structuring it.
0: And so when we open and we meet Brett again, he's he goes to this version of the Mall of America that's um, the utopian mall with some friends from high school that he's had forever and they walk laps. It's like how they, (laughs) how they beat maybe the Minnesota winter and, and stay warm and, and they walk laps and on his way, he meets kind of a mysterious man on a train who tells him some version of what you were saying about this flu cure, that if he goes to a river and brings a mirror and washes the reflection, like he's going to find what he's looking for and that he's going to have this kind of epiphany with some other people on the train, which happened to be Christina and Ludlow. And so it brought sort of an element of a little bit of magic to it where you are kind of destabilized from the beginning because you don't know exactly where reality ends and beginning ends and begins. And the question of reality was so huge in the book. I was wondering if you wanted to comment on that a little bit and, and maybe uh, the backdrop for questioning reality has to do with the, the version of truth that the sun collective and others want to create.
1: The man whom uh, Bredigan meets on the train claims to be a doctor. He he hands over a business card. His name is Arver Jefferson. And he's a very odd-looking guy. He has glasses on um, that reflect light in such a way that you can't see his eyes. Uh, And He really, for me, uh, had three functions, three uses as as a character to get things started. First of all, he's telling um, the reader, in effect, I'm telling the reader by introducing this guy, Arvur Jefferson, that reader, you are not entering a purely realistic novel this novel is going to have some element of the uncanny, the fantastical, the weird. And arver Jes- Jefferson is dressed in a peculiar ways, wearing a trilby hat. Um, he, he keeps checking his pocket watch, like uh, the white rabbit in Alice in Wonderland. Um, he has this preposterous cure um, that he passes on to Bredigan about putting uh, a mirror into the water. But he also does something else, which is to pass on to Bredigan um, a French Canadian myth of Jesus. Uh, Notre Seigneur en pauvre, and in in this legend, uh, Jesus wa- is walking among us wearing rags and asking for help, and uh, Dr. Jefferson says it's a spot quiz for your salvation, and Fredigan naturally thinks that the kids across the aisle from him, as soon as Jefferson gets off the train, will ask him for money. Uh, But they don't. Uh, But that is one of the preoccupations, one of the themes that the novel kind of sets into motion from that point on. And without giving too much away, I, I was thinking of this, Opening scene when I got to the end of the novel, and um, in my kind of secret way, uh, I did have uh, somebody sort of like Jesus approach Bredigan in the closing pages of the novel. Uh, and Bredigan gives that figure all the money he has. Um, your other question about uh reality and and realism is a big one and and um it's 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 hard to answer except to say that i wanted the novel to have um, a, a kind of realistic basis but i wanted it also to give off the shimmer of the fantastical of the un, uh, uh, and the uncanny, uh, and so I hope it does both
0: there There was another question though also about reality, and I don't know if it's going too deep into some of the questions of the book, but there there are a lot of people that are questioning like what is reality? not I mean, maybe a little bit is coming from the president and the way he leads, and some of it is just become coming from the way that people live but it seems to me like it's an existential question in the book.
1: I mean, what a great question. Uh, but of course, questions don't get any bigger than that. You know, what is what is reality? And, and when you start asking, what is reality? You then start to ask, or at least I do, a, a related question which defines the first one. And it is, Whose reality is it and how much of us share that particular view of reality? I gave a lecture at Warren Wilson uh, two years ago in which I said, um, realism in fiction and maybe realism in life is meaningful as long as almost everybody agrees what reality is. If there's no agreement on what reality is, then, then realism for writers, for artists can't get a foothold uh, because everybody seems to have a conflicting view of how the world works, who's in control of it, uh, whether our actions can bring about real change or whether mysterious, invisible forces are at work uh, at at the controls. And I think what you see in my novel is um, the sense that the older couple would like reality to be what it always has been. Um, You know, stable family, kids you can call up any day of the week, uh, predictable things. And that sense of realism, that sense of the predictable and how people behave and what they do has been lost, I think, to Christina And Ludlow they they don't believe that there is a shared reality I think Christina would like for there to be one um, but uh, it's it's not there it's not there it's not available for her so there's a conflicting sense of of where reality is and who defines it and to what degree um, it is fair to say that that, that you live in, in the real world or an unreal world. Um, Mr. and Mrs. Bredigan live in a real world. I wouldn't say that, that that Ludlow and Christina do, although sometimes they try.
0: You know, I think part of that, Unreality, and, and it's not actually unreality; it's alternate reality that people are trying to create, and we're trying to create it every day. I mean, we've been we've been living in a culture where lies have been acceptable, and we're trying to get back to a culture where where they're not. For instance, and so part of what you were creating was this alternate version of how people could live, which was in the Sun Collective. And so I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about writing that because they, the people in the collective left pamphlets about their organization at this mall, and they also had a manifesto, and you wrote part of that as well. So you were kind of mm-hmm. breaking your, your train of thought from the narrative into the, the philosophy of, of this collective.
1: Well, when I started writing the book, I could see up ahead that I was going to have a particular challenge, and that was to try to be fair uh, to the feelings of desperation that many people have, in which I remember, I, I'm in my 70s, and I remember these feelings of desperation from the late 1960s. And I, I felt that uh, it, it was a matter of trying to articulate the way that Um, ecology and consumerism and anti-consumerism and anti-racism and um, impulses for um, local governance local local everything Uh, the way these movements were converging and also I thought Um, among the groups whose the anarchists whose work I have been studying, um, that there, there was also an interesting movement against not only consumerism, but the kinds of computerized algorithms that track you once you begin shopping online. And I thought, well, you know, I think the members of the Sun Collective might be onto that and to be resisting it. So I wrote this farrago of, of a manifesto. It was many, many pages longer than it now appears in the novel. My, my editor just took a red pencil to it because it just stopped the show. And stop the story, because I had gone on and on about it, but I thought you know to to give the reader a sense that we uh, particularly young people, feel as if we may be living in the end times, and if you really feel that way, what kind of a manifesto are you going to write um, it's it's going to have to have at least four different streams of, of thought and nevertheless, maybe feel kind of coherent. Um, anyway, those were some of the thoughts that were going through my head when I finally got to the manifesto and, and to the, meetings of the sun collective itself Uh, nearly all of those meetings are filtered through christina uh who is high whenever she uh, goes to sun collective meetings she's very fond of a drug that i invented called blue telephone which ruptures space time and so you know she she's both out of it when when she goes to their meetings, but, but also deeply, she becomes kind of deeply invested in what they're up to.
0: I want to get to the blue telephone, but I just want to ask you really quickly, when you turned in your manuscript and you had such a long manifesto, did you sort of know in your gut that it was going to get red penciled?
1: Uh, if it hadn't been read penciled by my editor, I would have read penciled it. <laughs> I just knew. I knew it was too long. That uh, There were other things in the novel that I knew had to go. I, I just hadn't quite had the courage to dump these things. My characters in this book uh, have a tendency to start telling stories. Uh, and in... In the previous version of the manuscript, which was at least 100 pages longer, um, they all go off uh, on these various tangents. There there are odds and ends of that that still remain in in the book. Um, Harry and Alma give a dinner party that Ludlow and Christina attend, and alma begins to talk about a man she knew in college and the story she tells goes on for pages uh, and i did my best to cut it down but i really felt it had to stay in the novel um, I, I love it when characters in fiction start to tell stories i think readers are always transfixed when that happens um, I, I'm I'm probably wrong about that, but but I love it when novels go into guide, into digressions. It feels like freedom to me.
0: So you mentioned Blue Telephone. I wanted to ask you about it. You, when you first introduce it, you're talking about a variety of drugs that it's sort of like, like sort of like meth, and sort of like acid, and sort of like mushrooms, and sort of like none of them, and it seems to. As you said like bend time and space so when you come out of it you might have foreseen something it also can make you have bad dreams and i also got the sense while christina was on it that there were definitely other people in the community or society on it why was it important for you to to have this drug in there and did you do a lot of drugs before you invented it
1: Uh, Not for years, not for years. Um, You know, I'm in that generation of that grew up, came to maturity in the 60s. And if you weren't doing at least some drugs in those days, you weren't awake. Um, But um, yours is a great question. And it's a serious question. And the way that I would answer it is by saying that I needed a portal. I needed an element in the story that would bend reality a bit and, and move what was going on uh, out of a kind of, Uh, domestic realism into something wilder I needed something I'll I'll just repeat that adjective I needed something wilder something more expressionistic something bigger more emotional uh, and expressionistic you know I, I I really admire many of the novels of the Early part of the 20th century, where reality gets bent in one way or another, and there are a, a, quite a few writers who are working now these days, both in this country and elsewhere, uh, to write uh, who are writing the kind of fiction uh, that I love. Um, In the early part of the 20th century in Russia, there's um, Mikhail Bulgakov, his novel, The Master and Margarita, which may be one of my favorite, if not the favorite novel that I have. And and, and working now in Japan, there's uh, Haruki Murakami. Um, I, I wrote a long review essay about Murakami's work a few years ago for the uh, New York review of books. And there are a lot of African-American writers, uh, writers of color these days, who are engaged in what I would call wonderlands. And I think it's because they feel that if you're sort of alive to the way the world feels and has felt both to people of color and to many white people for the last 5, 10, 15 years. Creating a wonderland in fiction is truer to the experience than writing what I'd call empirical domestic realism. So the, the blue telephone, that drug, was a great aid to me in creating that Wonderland effect, and I was also careful to set a lot of my scenes at night, as the characters are sort of wandering around their neighborhoods. Um, it's it's a moonstruck book and sunstruck too. That, that that's why Blue Telephone is is such a major part of the novel it kind of gets christina and it gets the reader into into a wonderland
0: i felt like dreams were very important part of the book as well for people on and off the drugs there are a few things that there are a few characters that were experiencing dreams i wonder if you wanted to talk about that
1: um yeah um Harry, in particular, has dreams. He wakes from dreams feeling that he has murdered somebody. Absolutely feels right down to the marrow of his bones that he has m- murdered somebody. And when he wakes, he can't remember who he's, uh, whom he has murdered. But this feeling he has uh, really torments him. And there there are other moments in in the novel that I I wrote as if they were actually happening, but are dreamlike. Uh, Christina goes a little zoo in st paul minnesota in the middle of winter and she has a conversation with the head of the sun collective in in front of the wolf cage and the wolves come over and look at her and i i wrote that scene as as if it were happening in a dream i I, it's just that i mean all writers To some degree, consciously or not, um, bring the unconscious up to the surface um, when the going gets tough, when when characters are at a crisis point. Um, I I think I think readers are generally bored by dreams. And, you know, Stanley Elkin used to say, write a dream, lose a reader. And, and so I try not to have too many um, dreams as dreams. I, I just try to make these scenes as visual as I can make them, as concrete as I can make them, but at the same time to seem as if you yourself are in a dream. There's, there's another scene where Christina is sitting in a car. She's just dropped. Ludlow off and she sees a playground in the middle of winter and some children are on a set of swings and one of them swings high and stops at the top and she's a little high on blue telephone at that point but it's also a signal that uh, reality Realism is morphing into something else. And and without being explicit about it, it shows the reader that as well.
0: Well, one of the things I walked away with, it's not the only theme, was the question of what are we culpable for? There's some reasons why why Tim took off and, and left, and there are reasons why... The Sun Collective came about. There are reasons why people are being haunted, whether they're poor, or wealthy. In the book, and I just thought, you know, how how culpable are we for other people's feelings and reactions when we're interacting with them on a daily basis? I don't know if that rings true for you or not. My my yes. takeaway.
1: Yes, it it's 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 very much. I think. a a part of our lives if you choose to allow that feeling uh, to enter your heart and your soul if you walk um, down a city street if you live in a city like the one I live in and there are homeless people not on every street corner, but there are likely to be homeless people Uh, on your route. uh, What do you feel? How do you feel it? I, I remember in high school, my civics teacher said, and this is 1963, he said this, if you walk down the street and you see a poor person sitting on the sidewalk with, let's say his handout and you have contempt for that person, you're a Republican. If if you see that person with his handout and you feel bad about it and you feel that you should do something. You're a Democrat. This is the kind of thing that you say to high school students in order to clarify matters. And of course this is it's a terrible over generalization. But I think it gets to your question of how responsible do we feel? Should we feel for poverty that we see around us or climate change or any of our racism or sexism? Uh, What do what do we feel about these things? And if we feel uneasy about these matters, what do we do? I mean, in some ways, that's at the heart of my novel.
0: I was thinking, too, that it must have been difficult, even though you had these themes in there anyway, and I I could totally be wrong, but when it's so rooted in, in Minneapolis and when everything happened with the murder of George Floyd, I'm assuming the book was done and being printed and i wonder if that how you felt about that
1: um i went over there uh where it happened and um you know i had i had brought my iphone and i i took some pictures and um then uh, As I was walking away, I started to cry, as a lot of people do. I mean, it's it's an interesting sight because there are people who are celebrating and people who are praying and people who are weeping. And, you know, unbidden, the tears came to my eyes. And as I was walking away, this very nice woman... um, who had this little sort of stand said, um, do you want your hands sanitized? Uh, I was wearing a mask of course. Um, so I held out my hands and she sanitized my hands with hand sanitizer. And I walked away and sort of wiped the tears off my face. And then I went to one of the places where I get ex where I got exercise during the summer, the, parks were very crowded. I went over to Lakewood Cemetery, uh, which is a big cemetery here in Minneapolis. And I took a walk through there. And, you know, I was thinking about George Floyd. I wrote a poem about this. It's called Lakewood and it's in the current Georgia Review. Um, I mean, the direct answer to your question is that in fact, my novel was being set up in It was being printed when the George Floyd murder happened, but, um, you know, the novel and that event are, are connected, I think, um, in, in, again, in the sense of responsibility and rage and the question of what do we do now? What should we be doing now?
0: So much of the book is focused on the Sun Collective, which has a a sort of of end-of-times feel. And I wonder if any of it feels different to you now that we have a different government coming into place.
1: Yes, it does. I, I felt... And, you know, I'm just speaking as a Democrat here. I felt when Biden was called as the president-elect, I thought, we have a future again. As long as the current president was and is president, it, it felt as if the future had been canceled um, or was being ignored. Um, and I thought that was true about the attitudes that were being taken toward the virus, attitudes that were being taken toward our natural resources, attitudes that were being taken toward the climate. And now I think, well, maybe we, we're, we will have a future after all. Um, so yes, yes. I mean, my thinking did change.
0: Can you share a passage from an author that influenced you as a writer?
1: Um, because we've been talking about Bulgakov and the Master and Margarita, uh, I'd like to read a passage from that novel. This is in a translation by Diana or Diana Bergen and Catherine Tiernan O'Connor. And it's near the end of the book. The characters are traveling at night. And I I need to explain to your listeners um, that the master is a novelist. Woland is a talking cat who um, is in Satan's retinue. And as they're traveling through um, the moonlight, they come upon the figure of Pontius Pilate. The moon was a great help to Margarita. It gave better light than the most powerful electric street lamp. And Margarita saw that the seated figure, whose eyes seemed blind, was spasmodically rubbing his hands and gazing with unseeing eyes at the disk of the moon. Now Margarita could see that next to the heavy stone chair which seemed to sparkle in the moonlight there lay a huge dark dog with pointed ears who, like his master was gazing anxiously at the moon. At the feet of the seated figure were shards of a broken jug and a blackish red puddle that would never dry up. The riders stopped their horses they have read your novel began Woland turning to the master and they said only one thing that unfortunately it is not finished so i wanted to show you your hero he has been sitting here for about two thousand years sleeping but when the moon is full is tormented, as you can see, by insomnia. And it torments not only him, but his faithful guardian, the dog. If it is true that cowardice is the most grave vice, then the dog, at least, is not guilty of it. The only thing that brave creature ever feared was thunderstorms. But what can be done the one who loves must share the fate of the one he loves. What is he saying? Asked Margarita, and her oddly tranquil face was covered by a veil of compassion. He says, Wolin's voice rang out, the same thing over and over, that the moon gives him no peace and he has a bad job. That is always what he says when he cannot sleep. And when he does sleep, he always sees the same thing, the path of moonlight. And he wants to walk on that path and talk to the prisoner, Jesus Christ, because, as he keeps maintaining, he did not finish what he wanted to say long ago on the 14th day of the spring month of Nisan. But, alas, for some reason, he never does manage to walk on the path, and no one comes to see him. Let him go, suddenly shouted Margarita, piercingly, just as she had shouted when she was a witch, and her cry dislodged a boulder on the mountainside and sent it hurtling down the slopes into the abyss with a thunderous crash.
0: Do you want to say anything else about that, about why you chose it?
1: it, it I, I'd almost rather let the, the passage speak itself it's a climactic moment Um, uh, Margarita is the partner of the novelist in the novel uh, who's always referred to as the master Uh, the master's novel um, has been burned by the authorities and um, um, Satan who's in this novel almost a figure of kind of sinister pranks, but also brings good to bear tells her manuscripts don't burn and takes the masters, um, manuscript out of the fire, uh, and, uh, saves it. Uh, and the end of the novel is a kind of liberation for, for everybody. Um, for Pontius Pilate, uh, for Ha Nostri, who's is the name of, of Jesus in the novel. Um, I, lo- I, I, I love it because it's a moment of liberation and it's a meeting of arts and um, religious feeling.
0: Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft. Mm-hmm.
1: This is a scene in which Harry Bredigan finally sees his son uh, among the um, homeless. He's taking. He can't sleep, and he's uh, walking around his neighborhood at night. As he approached the freeway, the residential homes gave way to apartment buildings, including one from which music emerged. Something with heavy orchestration, Brahms maybe, feeling inconsolable. From another window, he heard a woman shouting, Carl, are you over there? And in response, a male voice shouted back, No. The night air was full of voices. Redigan heard the increasing background noise of the freeway. And when he looked off to his right, he saw two floors above a mom and pop corner grocery store, another figure standing at a window in a thoughtful posture. Again, a woman, her left arm supporting the right at the elbow. She seemed to be wearing a wedding dress. When Brettigan looked more closely, however, he saw that this figure wasn't a human being at all, but a mannequin, standing there in front of the window, a fully-gowned dressmaker's dummy sporting a tiara. Up ahead, on the other side of the street, Brett again saw a clutch of homeless people, four or five of them encamped under a pre-stressed concrete highway overpass. They looked like a ragged platoon that had been through a terrible winter battle in Russia and were now in retreat after having traveled hundreds of miles through snow. They were huddled together for shelter. Some sort of fire guttered guttered nearby inside a barrel, the fire itself invisible, Though it gave off sparks that shot upward. Gazing in shadow from across the street at this raggedy human assemblage. Redigan felt transported to all the world cities where threadbare cast off men and women gathered under public structures for protection returned to sender subterraneans. The clustered, hollowed eyed, irregulars who. But wait. As he drew closer, he saw that the five individuals were seated on the ground, not crouching, passing around a bottle of what was probably vodka. On the left was a tattered young man wearing a shabby red flannel shirt too heavy for late summer, seated next to someone with long, greasy, stringy hair, identifiable as neither gender, possibly not gendered at all. This person in turn located next to a young man who was leaning back on his elbows and whose clothes were slightly cleaner than those of the other wasted vagrants. As Bredigan drew closer, he saw that the young man was even at this distance alert enough to return his gaze. And as Bredigan's eyes came into focus and his mind cleared, he thought that he was looking at his own son, sitting there like a guard or protector of the others. And Bredigan called out to him, crying his name, before the young man stood up and ran out from under the bridge and down the street toward the sidewalk, disappearing into the distance.
0: Where do you write?
1: Uh, In this room I'm uh, speaking to you from. this This is my study with the books on one wall and the window facing west, so the afternoon light comes in. Uh, sometimes I, take a, I pick up my laptop and I move into the bedroom in the winter because the direct sunlight comes in there.
0: What do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: I walk. Um, I walk all over the city. Um, um, I, I, I walk along the Mississippi or I ro- walk around um, the lakes that are that are in Minneapolis.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I have two
1: three writer friends uh, whom I acknowledge in the novel, Stephen Schwartz, Robert Cohen, and Chris Kander, and um, I showed the novel to those three when I first finished it. And then to a, to a half a dozen others just to get to get feedback and and also uh, my my agent and my editor are also two of the first people to see it
0: how have you dealt with rejection
1: i remember this question from the last time we had an interview and i think at that time i said beer and pizza i deal with rejection now that i'm older with a shrug When I was younger, it was much harder.
0: I thought maybe you were going to say, well, now I'm gluten-free, so I can't do that.
1: (laughs) No, no, pizza is still a great solace.
0: (laughs) And what is your favorite word?
1: Oh, uh, love, I think.
0: Well, thank you so much for your time. I so appreciate it.
1: Well, thank you. It's been wonderful talking to you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Charles Baxter, author of The Sun Collective. If you'd like today's show, check out my first interview with Charles about his short story collection called There's Something I Want You to Do, which focuses on human virtues and vices. You can find that interview and the entire First Draft archive at firstdraftwriters.com. I can't tell you enough how much each and every single dollar counts to keeping the show alive. The first tier of support is just $6 a month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. I want to send a huge thank you out to my patrons for making this interview happen. Your support makes First Draft a dialogue on writing a reality every week. Please stay healthy and safe. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm your host and producer, Mitzi Rapkin.